Welcome to the Hello Someday podcast, the podcast for busy women who are ready to drink less and live more. I'm Casey McGuire-Davidson, ex-red wine girl turned life coach, helping women create lives they love without alcohol. But it wasn't that long ago that I was anxious, overwhelmed, and drinking a bottle of wine a night to unwind. I thought that wine was the glue holding my life together, helping me cope with my kids, my stressful job, and my busy life. I didn't realize that my love affair with drinking was making me more anxious and less able to manage my responsibilities. In this podcast, my goal is to teach you the tried and true secrets of creating and living a life you don't want to escape from. Each week, I'll bring you tools, lessons, and conversations to help you drink less and live more. I'll teach you how to navigate our drinking-obsessed culture without a buzz, how to sit with your emotions when you're lonely or angry, frustrated or overwhelmed, how to self-soothe without a drink, and how to turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst-case scenario to the best decision of your life. I am so glad you're here. Now let's get started. Hey there. I've got some big news for you that I have been not so patiently waiting to tell you about. After six months away, my super popular completely free masterclass is back and it's better than ever. I've been working on it for months. So if you have been struggling to get sober momentum, please go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class. You can sign up for my free training, Five Secrets to Taking a Break from Drinking, even if you've tried and failed in the past. In this 60-minute masterclass, I am going to share with you all the things you need to stop doing because they're setting you up for self-sabotage and what you need to start doing instead. I am giving you the steps and the mindset shifts that I go through every day with my private coaching clients, and it is completely free. So if you are sober curious, if you've been thinking about taking a break from alcohol, this class is going to set you up for success. I promise you it is worth your time. So hit pause on this episode, go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class and save your seat. Hi there. My guest today is Lotta Dan. She's an author from New Zealand whose third book, The Wine O'Clock Myth, is being released in the U.S. on October 16th in paperback. But I'm betting that many of you know Lotta, as I did, as Mrs. D from Mrs. D is Going Without. Lotta had a successful career as a TV reporter, a producer, and a director, while also developing a remarkable aptitude for drinking a lot of alcohol, as I did too, and I'm sure many of you listening have. Lotta began an anonymous blog called Mrs. D is Going Without when she was first stopping drinking as a way to work through her thoughts and feelings and keep herself accountable when she was starting her journey without alcohol. And on her third day sober, she writes her first ever blog post to herself. I loved this when I was reading her book, Mrs. D is Going Without. She tells the full story of her final night drinking and how she's had enough of the boozy madness. And she writes, I've reached a tipping point 
and from now I have decided to remove alcohol from my life. I'm scared. This is going to be hard. All our family drank, all our friends drank, and I'm going to try to do this without any outside support. Just this blog. So stay posted and I'll let you know how I get on. Love, Mrs. D. And I'm going to talk with Lada about that book. She wrote a second book, Mrs. D is Going Within, about touching on mindfulness and the tools she uses to navigate life from an emotionally healthy place after putting down the wine bottle and her new book, The Wine O'Clock Myth. So Lada, thank you for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, I love hearing your New Zealand accent. That's awesome. Yeah, we swallow our eyes, so we we don't we say fish, fish that swim in the sea. Oh, instead of fish, that is yeah, fish. I was like, what word is that? Okay, that's very <laughs> cool. So I want to talk all about your book, The Wine O'Clock Myth, because I know that so many of us. I mean, I always am like, is it sippy time? It's five o'clock somewhere. Um, wine o'clock, all that stuff. But just to start, in case people haven't read your blog or haven't read your book, will you tell us a little bit about why you decided to stop drinking? Oh, I had to. I mean, you know, alcohol brought me to my knees, literally. I had been a, a habitual drinker for all of my adult life. From the age of 15, I started drinking. I think I was a daily drinker by 18 through to the age of 39. And while there were a lot of fun times and good times, you know, there was a lot of sadness and dangerous times and sad times and vulnerable times. And things progressed for me and I got, you know, heavily addicted and spent a good sort of two or three years at the end really, really trying every trick in the book to moderate and control and couldn't. And things just got worse and worse to the point where I had to take it away because I was starting to be deceitful. I was hiding bottles. Like it it was bad. So yeah, I made the terrifying, utterly terrifying decision to remove alcohol completely. Yeah. And I know that as part of that, because I I read Mrs. D and I also came to the same place, right? Where you're constantly like, I'm not going to drink today. I'm only going to have two glasses. I'm going to take some time off. And then you're just so irritated, so annoyed, so wanting, you know, do I have enough? You're breaking down, drinking, and then at 3 a.m., coming back to the same place where you feel so ill and so defeated. And, you know, I don't think anyone who loves to drink or sees themselves as a drinker, like you did, I know, like I do, who doesn't have tried to moderate for years and years and years before they finally sort of throw in the towel. And what I loved about your book is that you take people through each day through day three, through day five, because there's such a similar cadence for what we go through in different phases. I mean, day five is is so hard for everyone. You know, day 16 somehow is really difficult. And you didn't even intend to document that, right? It was just for yourself. Yeah. It was. And as you said in your intro, you know, I set out to do this on my own and my blog was going to be my only tool. But the thing about that first book, which is based around the blog, is um, it's not really a drinking book. Mm-hmm. I mean, I talk about my 
my drinking, but it really is a sobriety book. It's a book about that first year of recovery because it's hard and I wanted people to, to have those sort of steps of this is what it's like. This is what it's like when you go to your first wedding. This is what it's like when you go. I mean, you, everything is so strange and foreign. And I now know, as you do, you know, that there are similar steps along the way for people. And I think it's really good just to have that laid out because there are a lot of people that embark on it and, you know, quitting and they're terrified, understandably, because our world is awash with booze and we're convinced that it's the only way to have fun and relax and everything. And so learning how to live without it is massive. Yeah. I mean, it's so hard. It's sort of like the coping skills that we should have learned at the age of 16, 18, 22, 25, and we never did because anytime we were happy, sad, frustrated, upset, socially awkward, we just drank. Yeah, and the reason that a lot of us try for ages to moderate is because we have the misguided belief that it's possible for everyone to moderate. If only I do this and that and the other, then I'll be okay. Because we don't have this kind of dialogue, open dialogue in our um, you know, social parlance that accepts that this is an addictive drug and that many, many people can't moderate it because of the way we're wired. And it's, that's one of the you know, issues I have right now is with this lack of kind of openness about how not everyone can moderate. I believe if only I did this, that and the other, then I'll, then I can moderate. And you feel like a failure when you can't because you can't achieve it. I mean, I just could not moderate. Could you? No. Oh God, no. I mean, no, I drank like you did 365 nights a year. I mean, every yeah. day. I thought tried that would- every trick in the book to oh, quit. Oh God. I mean, every trick in the book yeah. and you not know, to quit husband, sorry to moderate yeah I mean yeah. to not have to quit like literally quitting yeah. was my worst case scenario in my life <laughs> so I would think to myself literally you have to figure out how to get a hold of this so that you'd never have to quit like that was the motivating factor and my husband used to say you just don't have an off switch you drink basically until it's gone or until you pass out. And and that's on a Tuesday night. And I also drank like a bottle of wine a night, 365 nights a year, somehow functioned, somehow I had two kids, somehow got to work and did my workouts, which by the way, suck at five in the morning, 530 when you've got a bottle of wine in your belly. And yet I thought I was holding it all together. I did not realize how hard I was making it on myself until I quit. Oh, it's amazing what we can um, manage and still sink an absolute ton of alcohol. I mean, if I think of it now, I was studying to do my master's, parenting three children, going to the gym, you know, feeling awful, rolling my sick guts over a Swiss ball, I remember. Oh my God, I remember you writing that. (laughs) I was like, oh, I did burpees at 5.30 in the morning with a (laughs) bottle plus of wine in my belly. Just, I mean, even putting your head down below your legs when you have that. I mean, oh my God, I was killing myself. I know. And there are still so many people doing this. That's what breaks my heart. But anyway, yet we we managed it. And then it's not until you take it away. I mean, that's a wonderful thing. I mean, jumping ahead now, but wonderful thing about being sober. Not only do you feel better and you manage everything better, but you start to realize it's just not true that you need this stuff to live. (laughs) We were so terrified, right? 
Well, and one thing that I loved about your book and what you're looking at and and what really resonated with me is you said, basically, we need to take a critical look at why alcohol has such a privileged place in our society. And that, you know, it is, it is put out there like the best thing since sliced bread. It is, you know, a, a right of adulthood. It is your favorite thing, your best thing, you know, and so tell me about that privileged place and how, you know, from your research, you saw that growing and becoming established. I think it's happened really slowly over time to where we have lost sight. And you know that there's a fable about frogs in a pot. If you put a frog in a pot of of cool water and slowly heat the water up, he doesn't realize he's cooking. I think we're frogs in the pot and we've been in this environment with alcohol and it slowly got liberalized to where the marketing's quite... You know, there's a few sort of restrictions around marketing and sales, but not a lot. I mean, in my town in my country you can buy alcohol in the supermarket it literally sits next to the bread and milk here too and so here too yeah and it's advertised right through social media and always is a good thing there's no warning labels telling you you know this may be harmful to your health like there is on only if you're pregnant only if you're pregnant you get that so if you walk around our environment there are no outward signs of the danger inherent in this product like and you know, the problem is that the industry has gotten so big and so powerful and has such access to our uh, policymakers, you know, through lobbyists and what have you. And they're so good at what they do, at making themselves look like they care. You know, they're always putting out information about how to moderate, how to how to limit your drink sizes, all this stuff that looks good on the surface, but actually it's disingenuous because... As we said before, this is an addictive drug that many people can't moderate. So we've just, there's a combination of factors that have led to this crazy situation. And the bottom line, a lot of people are struggling and they're struggling in silence because they feel they are personally flawed. You blame yourself. You blame yourself. And that's what breaks my heart because, you know, I'm not a bad person. You're not a bad person. We're not weak. We no. just people that got addicted to something that's addictive. That is exactly, exactly how I believe and look at alcohol and becoming addicted to it. Like, of course, with enough prolonged exposure, you become addicted to an addictive substance. It's, I feel like it's a, a spectrum of, you know, slow dependence on this addictive substance and, you know, Anyone with enough exposure will go down that trail. And a lot of that is societal. It is where, what you grew up with, who your friends are, how much you drink, how often you drink. A lot of times, of course, it's what's underneath why you drink, right? I had a lot of anxiety. I had a lot of uh, never really figured out how to self-soothe without alcohol. And once I found alcohol in college, it was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And just wanted more and more and daily. And of course it's addictive, but you're right. There is, you know, there is this line where people say they think that only a really small proportion of society has a problem with this drug. And we know from talking to people, from being a member of groups, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people 
and women out there struggling with this who never talk about it with each other. And it's Yeah, crazy. and that's the other problem I have with the statistics that show, you know, the number of people that are drinking to hazardous levels. It's people, it's self-reported and often yeah. people don't yeah. tell the truth. I mean, I didn't if I was ever asked. And so I really believe the problem is bigger than um, what is being reported. But, you know, you're right about there being things behind, you know, why some people get addicted and others don't. And, you know, you mentioned things like mental health issues and also there's childhood trauma plays a huge part if you've had tricky stuff go on. Um, but the other the bottom line is there are also a lot of people who can moderate and control this drug, right? They can actually use it and not use it hazardously. The problem is we've moved our environment way too far in the direction of um, thinking that everyone's fine with it. And alcohol is not going anywhere, nor should it. People are allowed to use it if they want, right? Freedom of choice. We're not talking about prohibition here. But I think we just need an environment that reflects more honestly the dark side, reflects my experience of struggling with it, and has a bit more caution placed around this product so that it's not hailed as an amazingly good thing everywhere. I think you're completely right. And I kind of hope for the arc that cigarettes have taken, right? Where originally it was seen as the way to be cool, the way for women to be empowered, the way to be independent. Doctors, and doctors prescribe yes, it. Doctors prescribe it. I mean, I know that, you know, even people talking to their therapists, their doctors, they've been like, oh, well, you know, just have a glass of wine at night. It can relax you. It can, like they have their, own, they've been brainwashed too. And it's being held up in the same way cigarettes were. And yet now everybody knows cigarettes are addictive and harmful and cause cancer and aren't healthy at all. They're still sold. But if you tell someone I used to smoke and I decided to quit and it was hard, everybody's like, good for you. Thank God. Right? I know. That's so true. I do think that it will happen. I I really do. There, There will come a time when we look back at this environment we're living in yeah because humans are smart I mean this is just the logical way that we're going to go because it it makes I mean it's the right thing to happen it will happen eventually but it's it's just starting to be chipped away at now and there's a lot going on at the moment in the world a lot you know we are dealing with a pandemic I mean hello when's that ever happened Um, you know (laughs) we're dealing with some really extreme political situations like alcohol Alcohol's time isn't here right now, but I do believe it will come. I really do. So what do you think the biggest changes need to be to sort of get away from the wine o'clock, wine mum culture? I think marketing has to be massively curbed. I do not think that liquor companies should be able to put out big, glossy images of happy, healthy-looking people drinking because those images are powerful and they're just they're just telling lies about the reality for so many people. So I think put put curbs on marketing big time, and um, so the the public health experts will tell you the three things that really change um, habits are price, availability, and marketing. Mm-hmm. So at the moment it's very very cheap. 
Um, it's available everywhere and it's marketed everywhere. I'm kind of saying let's leave price alone for now because I don't want to make the drinkers grumpy, <laughs> right? I just think let's not hit them in their pocket, but let's at least put curbs on where it's available, take it out of the supermarket um, because that just sends a message that it's harmless and it's not, and then put the curbs on marketing. I think, you know, have it in licensed stores that are, you know, you have to take a special trip to. Just outwardly treat it like it's a bit more, you know, we should be a bit more cautious. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it's this circular feedback loop that we've all bought into. Like we have been conditioned and truly bought in to the idea that alcohol, that wine, that a cocktail is the be all end all. It is required for any dinner party. It is required for any date night. It is required for any book club. Um, you know, baby showers, mimosas, you name it. Oh, you name it. <laughs> yeah. Like people are drinking, you know, at the soccer games, at the football games, you know, where their kids are playing, you know. Yeah. And now, so, Casey, tell me, how long since you've had a drink? Four and a half years. And and how is your life now when you go out and you go to events and socialize, you know, are you having a terrible time all the time? No, not at all. I love it. I love this it. This is the thing. This yeah. is why we need people like you and me to be saying, oh, my God, guys. Yes. Guess what? <laughs> yeah. It's not true that you need this magic liquid in your glass to make everything fabulous. Like, we now just live, right? Yes. We go to parties. We go to weddings. We go to events. And we don't have a terrible time. Sometimes the parties aren't great. That's just because it wasn't our party. Yes. It's not about what we're drinking or not drinking. Like it's all of these events are about human connection. Yes. Well, and not only that, I mean, I always think like if you want to drink to tolerate an event, it's or a situation or something, it's the event or situation that needs to change, not that you need to drink because clearly there's something underneath that you want to check out of. And so when you remove the drink, you you know, you're, I mean, you've talked about the dopamine hit and then the withdrawal. I mean, it is physical in the way that it's, it's affecting your pleasure centers. It's, it's messing with your memory. It's making you physically ill. It's upping anxiety. I found once I removed the alcohol, I felt more stable. I felt more content. I felt more able to cope with my life and my job. I didn't want to jump out of my own skin. The self-hatred went away. Um, I was more honest and open. My relationship with my husband got better. I was no longer asking my kids on Saturday morning to be quiet or not jump because mommy didn't feel so good. I mean, all of that was better. Every part of my life was better. And, but I, what I needed to do was build, build the ability to get comfortable with not drinking and to have fun and to manage my emotions and, you know, feel life and cope with it in a healthy way. Cause we still get angry, frustrated, bored. Yeah. And there is a transition in getting used to that. There's no denying it. You know, it does take a few months to just get used to feeling your feelings. That's so cliched, but it's true. It's so <laughs> and, true. and learn strategies. But the other thing I think is worth mentioning is, you know, in terms of socializing, going out and having fun, I'm actually naturally quite extroverted. So I don't have any social anxiety or, or trouble with small talk. I, I, I just don't. And it is worth saying that for a lot of people, they do get sober and realize, 
I'm actually quite an introverted person. I'm not comfortable in big groups. I find small talk difficult. I'm at my most happy when I'm either in one-on-one or very small groups or on my own. And that can also take a bit of adjustment, accepting who you are naturally. And so that's not a bad thing that you don't want to go to big parties, you know, and that you find them hellish. (laughs) It's part of that transitioning into your authentic self. And um, trust me, once you do that and you accept who you are, even if it means you're at home more on your own with your comfy pants on, watching TV, drinking tea and patting the cat, um, you'll be happier. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And so I wonder one of the things that I love you're a big fan of, and I am too, because I think it's absolutely critical in quitting drinking is sober treats. I talk about them all the time. So tell me about how you look at sober treats, you know, both in early sobriety and now. Yeah. So in early sobriety, they were very, very important, especially Friday evening, because Friday comes with this Friday magic feeling and you feel you need something. And so I'd often I'd go out on a Friday and I'd buy myself fresh flowers, a magazine, a scented candle, just treats for me. And mm-hmm. and the thing about sober treats is it's not so much the actual physical, you know, item that you're buying, although all of those things are lovely. It's the act of doing it and the message that you're sending yourself as you're doing it. You're saying, I deserve this. This is for me because I'm looking after myself. It's a little act of self-care. I mean, it might be just running a bath and lying in it with your book for an hour. That's a sober treat. Um, And it's just a way of acknowledging, you know, to yourself um, the incredible job you're doing turning your life around. So they are really, really important, these little acts of self-care and these treats. Um, Nowadays, it's... oh. It's, honestly, it's all about the herbal tea. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so yeah. Addic- yeah. I'm so addicted to tea. It's like I don't like fruity tea or peppermint tea, but I really like strong flavored and the herbal teas. You know, with cardamom or turmeric or oh, and there's so many out there. And I love nothing more than going to a tea store, chatting with the person behind the counter, sniffing a million teas, buying myself three. And and I never feel guilty about that. I spent $50 on tea the other day. <laughs> well, you spend so much money on alcohol, right? It's so much healthier. Yeah. Although nine years after my last drink, I think <laughs> I can't keep saying, well, it's the equivalent of a bottle of wine, but I do do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so I love that too. And I actually, when I work with women, I suggest that they literally make a list of things that they're excited about that might bring them pleasure, comfort, joy that are not alcohol. Because when I first quit drinking, I could not think of anything that I actually enjoyed more than wine. Like my mind was blank when someone said that. I'm like, I like a lot of things, but more than wine. So I walked through this like store and took pictures of things that could possibly be sober treats. Like there was a flyer for a Saturday farmer's market. I took a picture of that. There was fresh flowers and orchids, took a picture of that. There were journals that were beautiful and magazines. I took pictures of that. I bought some too, but I was like, I need to remember all the beautiful, good things in life that are not found in a bottle. 
Yeah, and a big part of this is reframing the whole treat and reward concept because for years we have told ourselves, especially as women, that wine is our treat. It's our treat, it's our reward for a hard day, it's our reward for being hardworking women. And so we take away our ultimate treat and reward we feel really bereft. So it's about reframing that because ultimately wine is not a reward. It's a numbing, um, you know, deadening. Once you've had that initial dopamine hit, it, basically it's a depressant. So it depresses mm. your central nervous system. It cuts you off from yourself. It cuts you off from the people around you. If you're stressed, it does nothing to alleviate the stress other than a temporary numbing, and then the stress comes back, usually with even more anxiety added on top. So it is a really flawed (laughs) treat and reward, but, you know, we all believe it, so no judgment there and no surprises given our environment. But, yeah, reframe that concept and really think about what is a really good treat or reward for you that's going to nourish you, ground you, actually make you feel better. Yeah. I mean, I always say when, when someone is having a really strong emotion, they're really upset, they're having a hard day, they're stressed at work, and they're like, I really want to drink. I'm like, they're, you are stressed, angry, frustrated, you need help. You need to do things to actually alleviate those emotions versus breaking a bottle of wine over your head to knock yourself unconscious. Like when you, It's like if you have a really bad migraine and you decide to slam your hand in a car door so that you won't have your migraine anymore. Like that is sort of my comparison to I'm trying to quit drinking. I'm on day 16. This really true emotion is happening that is negative. Let me drink a bottle of wine and sort of dive back into that drinking cycle. Yeah. Now here's the other thing, right? So a bottle of wine does the job, right? That's why we do it. It does give you the temporary release that you're after from the tough emotion. Um, A bubble bath doesn't do that. Neither does a scented candle or a bunch of flowers. However, what I have learned uh, in nine years of being sober is that actually sitting with the uncomfortable feeling, letting yourself feel the stress, the tension, the exhaustion, whatever, maybe, you know, chipping away at the edges with a bubble bath or a cup of tea, Um, but then just allowing yourself to feel it as uncomfortable as it is, that's actually the most helpful thing as time goes on. Because once you allow yourself to feel it, you know, there's a reason those emotions are there and you need to acknowledge what those reasons are and also let the wise part of you respond the wise part of you that that is going to respond when it's forced to by actually leaving it there so again it's a cliche but as uncomfortable as it is and it always happens I've just been through a really uncomfortable couple of weeks with some really gritty tough emotions and I'm just coming through it now in the last week I'm starting to lighten up a bit and I can look back now on those weeks a couple of weeks ago and I feel kind of resolved about it it's very hard to explain this you have to live this way and experience it to really understand but I'll I'll try (laughs) just just looking back at those tough weeks and knowing that I felt it knowing that I sat with it knowing that I kind of understand what it was about knowing that I honored the feeling 
actually feels better. And now I'm lightening up and things are starting to feel a bit more easeful. Um, I just feel better. I mean, it's, it's such a much better way to live, but it is, it, is a, it is a different way to live because you have to allow yourself those uncomfortable phases. Well, and realize too that you have bad days. Life is hard. Life is life, regardless of whether you're drinking or not drinking. Um, it's not that you're going to quit drinking and you are never going to have a hard time again. It is that you're actually going to be able to process it and move through it and cope in a healthier way. Yeah. And it makes you more empathetic as well because you, you're just more in touch with being human. Yeah. I mean, being human is hard. Life is hard. Yeah. Stuff happens all the time. Yeah. I mean, especially 2020. Hello. I mean, look at what we're all dealing with. Like it makes sense yeah. that we're struggling. Yeah. And so it's just being connected into that. I mean, I, Gosh, I spent 20 years trying to avoid feeling anything, especially sadness. That is yes. my big emotion that I really just didn't want to feel. And I've had to learn how to be sad. And I now know that I'm actually naturally a very watery person. I'm just, that's, that's my kind of go-to emotion. If anything hurts me or I, I don't get angry, I get sad. That's just who I am. And it's taken me a, a, a while to get used to that, but I actually feel quite, good about that now because it's I don't know it's just real and I feel kind of tender towards that sad part of me and it's 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 lovely well you have compassion for yourself instead of blaming yourself yeah and um I don't know it's just who I am I just feel okay about who I am I just tried to not be that I tried to be fun upbeat lotter it's all I ever wanted to be fun la 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 let's have fun and that's still there, but it's it's balanced out now by that watery, sad part of me that sometimes just retreats and and needs to kind of snuggle and be sad. And have you felt like you've gotten more support now that you're kind of more honest about how you're feeling? Yeah, I I have. You mean from people around me? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I... I've always had pretty good people around me with my family and my husband. It's mostly it's an inside job, honestly. Mostly it's the relationship with myself um, because we we really need to rely on ourselves. I mean, it's lovely having someone who yeah. is understanding and supportive, but it's about how we respond to ourselves. We're the ones with ourselves at three in the morning, you know, 10 at night. It's, it is that relationship with ourselves that is crucial and that's the one that's really improved and mm -hmm. I'm sure that all the people around me benefit from that and I'm just so grateful also that I'm modeling to my children um being okay with being emotional yes and I yeah yeah I love that too and also modeling that mommy doesn't need to get drunk every night to cope with life yeah, this isn't just what ad all adults do. I know. Yeah. Oh my gosh! I mean, my children. My eldest is sixteen next week. He's going to start drinking soon. I mean, that's just what will happen. I have to accept that. But I'm just so grateful that he doesn't have a mum who's opening a bottle of wine every night at home. It's just not his reality, and it could have been. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember it was. It's it's one of my cringeworthy moments, and of course we made a joke about it because that's what you do. But 
I was, my son was like, I forget whether he was three or four. We went to go see my in-laws in Florida for Christmas. And we, his um, grandma, my husband's mom, and I went to the grocery store and his um, grandma picked up a bottle of wine. And he said, oh, for mommy. And she said, oh, for mommy and me. And he said, we better get another bottle. Like at three or four, like, Uh, and it became the joke, right? It became the uh, joke, but you know, one bottle for two people, that's not enough for mom. Yeah. I had a similar thing with my toddler, the soon to be 16 year old who was sitting in the back of a car when I jumped back in the car with a bottle of wine. And he said from his car seat in the back, mum's juice, Mm -hmm. mum's juice. I know we're not the only ones, right? I mean, so many women cringe or make a joke about it and post it on social media when, you know, their kids are asked in kindergarten to draw pictures of their family or what mom loves or what mom does. And it's them with a, with a glass of wine, right? That's a thing. And that's part of the wine mom culture. Of course. And it's all over social media and glossy images on memes and cartoons. I mean, it's everywhere, that kind of imagery. And yeah. like, it's a funny ha-ha and it's not. And it's isolating. If you're struggling and you see that material floating around your Facebook or Instagram, it, it has a, does a little, you know, dig into how you're feeling. If you're, if you're worried about your drinking, then you feel outside of the joke and it's not nice at all. And one thing I think is actually really helpful is to edit your social media feed or to be really intentional about your social media feed. Like on Facebook, you can actually block alcohol ads. Like that's something you can do. Um, Unfollow, you know, of course I followed a ton of wineries around me. We have winery, we have 90 wineries, three miles from me, wine tasting. I think that's the reason I moved here. But you know, I unfollowed about six of them. I started following, you know, things like Hello Sunday Morning and, you know, yeah. other things uh, on Instagram. There are a ton of sober bloggers and sober people who post about really yeah. wonderful things about not drinking and also just other people. You can follow people who you wish to be like who aren't alcohol-centric, right? So many cool women don't drink. Um, Glennon Doyle is sober. Abby Wambach is sober. Um, Brene Brown is sober. I believe Elizabeth Gilbert is sober. Like all these fabulous women don't drink. And so in their social media feed, they are living really interesting, exciting, thoughtful, intelligent lives. And you're not going to see the wine memes on there. And that really helps shift what is normal. Yeah. And just raw, you know, real raw lives. That's what we want as women and men, but especially as women, because we're such emotional creatures, but you're right. The the sober scene online has exploded. And I I say the same thing. I say, you've got to make your feed your own. If you've got a friend who keeps on posting, you know, I deserve this and that, and it hurts you then you can block, uh, not block, you can mute. You can yeah, mute friends, mute, they won't unfollow. know. Yeah, and that's not mean. I mean, I've had to mute family members. It's not mean. It's just um, self-care. And, and they won't know. They won't know they won't you've know. done it. 
and unfollow at will and also fill up your feed with the good people. You're right. There's, there are so many accounts now. I mean, even in the nine years since I started blogging, it has really exploded. That's why I feel positive because I do think a, a slow change is coming. It hasn't filtered into the mainstream yet, but you can find that recovery sobriety stuff just it's quite easily yeah and once you once you find one look at who they're following because you'll find more and you just fill up your feed with all the good stuff and it'll make it it really will make a big difference it in changes your, life. your mindset it changes your idea of what is normal it changes your idea of what is self-care and what is fun i mean when you see people going on a hike every single weekend and posting these images of gorgeous places you say i need to hike more as opposed to people sitting there clinking their glasses, taking pictures of their alcohol. Then if you're not drinking, you're saying, why do they get to drink it? It activates that part of your mind that romanticizes it. You know, so you really do believe the messages that you're surrounded with. And I, that's why I love your blog, the books, the podcast, because we're recovering out loud, but we're sharing the wonderful parts of not drinking and telling people who are alone in their houses at 3 a.m., feeling guilty, feeling sick, hey, I was just like you, and I'm telling you it's better on the other side. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I worry that my social media is really boring, but because <laughs> all I'm doing is, but it's just illustrating here I am out at a bar and I'm having a lime and soda. Um, well, and it's, it's not boring to anyone who is in the process of reevaluating their relationship with drinking or stopping drinking. I remember that I needed to inundate myself with the quitlet books like yours. I need, you know, ev- I read everyone. Um, I listened to them on audiobooks at night when I was rocking my daughter to sleep. I listened to, I know you've been on the bubble hour. I have too. I listened to the bubble hour on walks constantly. You need that because you really are deconditioning yourself from, you know, like you said, alcohol has been put on this pedestal that we've been sort of indoctrinated into believing that it's Mm. the be all end all. So the work that that you were doing, you know, long before it was common is so important because you're it's giving huge. other people the idea that it's okay. One of yeah. my favorite things that you wrote in your day three post is I'm going to try to do this without any outside support. And what I love is you said the first time someone commented on your blog, it was like a light bulb went off. You didn't actually do it without any outside support. No, no. And I think I now realize it was foolish to set out to, to try and do it by myself because you do need other people. Um, and I found them through my blog. I found this amazing online community and the first comment, Oh my gosh, it was like a hug. And then they started coming more and more. And that's when I realized there's a whole lot of people just like me and we need that peer support. And there's a growing, um, emergence and recognition in the addiction sector of the power of peer support we need clinical people as well we need the trained people especially if we've got underlying mental health conditions or childhood trauma or things that we need to address but just in a general sense in terms of learning how to live every day without alcohol 
um, definitely need people who understand what it's like. And my husband, he wasn't that guy. You know, he's a normal drinker. He doesn't understand that internal struggle I had. And the minute I was connecting with people who got it, oh, yeah, that 3 a.m., you know, guilt or, oh, that craving where you're debating in your head for hours about whether or not to drink. No one can hear that. But if other people know what it's like, it's so empowering. And I'm a huge proponent of peer support. And that's why I'm, you know, I now run this online community, which is free for people to join because it's funded by the New Zealand government. We're very lucky. Um, It's all about peer support. We are just ordinary people talking to each other kindly and in non-judgmental ways supporting each other as we go ahead with this because yeah you do need um you do need to have people around you doing it on your own is yeah and I love that you know you were showing and you were showing early and I know so many people I found it as well that there's not just a one-size-fits-all um, way to recover, you know, a, you don't have to hit bottom and be court mandated to go to meetings. You also, you know, 12 step meetings are not the only way they are wonderful, but they are not the only way I ended up quitting drinking with a sober coach, but I also, you know, so I emailed her every day. I actually recorded my first 30 days of emails to her, which is similar to your, you know, I was like day three, day four, here's what I'm thinking. It's my first weekend, you know, and it's amazing to have those. I wrote her five days a week for a year. So I've got a year of emails to her about what I was thinking, but that real time feedback, like what you got on your blog, I was, was critical. And then similar to living sober, which we'll link to it's uh, the site in New Zealand that you um, run, I found all these sort of secret Facebook sober support groups that, you know, I remember the first time I posted my story, 25, 28 women said, my story is just like yours and it's going to be okay. And I felt like you felt and I won't drink with you tonight. And you're really brave. And all of that, I mean, I was in tears. I was in tears when I had that come back to me because my husband didn't get it. My friends didn't get it or they weren't ready to stop. And we don't forget, we felt isolated for years. Like we were the problem, like we were flawed because we live in this environment that says we should be able to moderate. And so suddenly when you feel like you're not alone, it is huge. It's so empowering and exciting. That's the thing. I just remember, I remember the moment where it all turned for me and I suddenly started realizing this is what I'm doing is actually really exciting and interesting. And yes, it's gritty and yes, it's hard. And yes, I have to feel sad and I've tried not to feel sad my whole life, but wow, something big is happening here and I'm into it. And once I got that curiosity, that kind of open mindset and that curiosity and that sort of slight bit of excitement, sounds weird to say it's exciting, but it is on a level you know, that's when you can really start to embrace the process. And that's what I always encourage people. Try and have a really open open and curious mindset because what you're doing is, you know, it's going to blow your socks off. And yeah. if you're in the early stages right now or you're right on the cusp of making that terrifying decision, know that there's going to come a day when you're going to look back and just be like, 
thank you for doing it. I mean, I look back at that version of me who sat on the loo at three in the morning on the 6th of September, 2011, in floods of tears, utterly wrecked. And I'm like, thank you, you amazing woman, because you did something that's got me here. And oh, I'm so grateful. Yeah. And I love how positive you are about quitting drinking and how it's changed your life. And, and how empowering it is. Cause I do also, I feel like quitting drinking is a brave thing and it is a bad ass thing to do. Yeah. That's the thing. It's really cool. It's like countercultural, man. You know, I was a rebellious teenager and now I'm a rebellious woman in her forties. Cause I'm saying to the world stuff that, yeah, sorry, but no, I'm going to push against the grain and I'm going to do it my way. And that really appeals to the rebel in me. It's incredibly countercultural to be a non-drinker. Yeah. And, you know, we are the cool ones. Trust me. <laughs> I know. And I also feel like when I'm talking to people like at a bar, um, even coworkers, they're like, oh, you don't want to drink. And I was like, oh, no, I quit drinking like four years ago. And they're like, you did? And I'm like, yep, absolutely. I used to drink a lot. I decided it wasn't working for me. I quit. And I feel like I've got a story there. There, People are like, wow. Oh, that's probably an interesting story. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like that. And if you, if you, the if truth? You, when you talk to former drinkers too, you get into those stories and they're really interesting. <laughs> you know, they've got some stories to tell. Yes. We've got fabulous skeletons in our closet. <laughs> yeah, but everybody does. But, you know, as you go through your life trying to put on the happy, pretty, I've got it all together version and you're sort of dying of isolation inside, you don't, you don't tell those stories. And we laugh. I laugh more with women who've quit drinking than anyone in the world. Like you've got a sense of humor about yourself. You, um, you just look back. I mean, stuff is funny that happened. It's sad, but, and I know people who are in the drinking cycle do not believe us, but when you get some distance from it, you're able to both feel compassion for where you were, but also when you get around other women who've been where you are, um, you laugh like you've never laughed before. Yeah, it's true. And it's, and it's, and it's proper happy endorphins, not chemical, chemically induced, you know, happy endorphins. It's actually genuine belly laughs. I agree with you. I've had such, that's the thing about sober emotions. They're so much more intense you know, they can be harder to come by because you're not finding them in a bottle every night. But when you have those really good belly laughs with people, it just feels joyous, doesn't it? Yeah. And I also feel like I've been able to go back to, you know, when I was a young girl, I loved going, I went on six week, six week backpacking trips with people. And it wasn't the backpacking, trust me, that I loved. It was sitting around the campfire and having really honest conversations with people and feeling like singing campfire songs and feeling like my heart is so full, I'm going to cry. And I get to do that now that I'm sober. I mean, I go to yoga retreats and we sit around during sharing circles at night and people play their guitar and we go on long walks and paddle boarding and skinny dipping. And I swear, I feel like I'm 16 again. Mm, I love that. So what did you find in sobriety that had been squashed so much by the alcohol for you? What's really risen up in terms of your authentic sort of I think that my biggest issue was that wine was becoming more and more and more 
important to me. It was occupying so much more of my mind. And I was so concerned with both wanting it and trying to really control how drunk I got. When I drank, you know, um, I was drinking more at home. Like I'd have a couple drinks out and then I'd come home and open another bottle. And I just had this big secret. Like I used to go up to the bus stop in the morning and my eyes would be watery. I'd be a little jittery. And I would want nobody to look too closely at me. I didn't want them to stare at me for too long or have too much of a close conversation. And I am naturally a very, very open person. I mean, I always tell people I'm a hugger. I want to share. I want to hear from you. I want to, you know, go sit and talk for hours and just closing myself off from people because they didn't want to look at, I didn't want them to see what was behind the curtain. I didn't want them to see how watery my eyes were. Um, That was the biggest thing that I had blocked out. Mm, That's sad, isn't it? So you were just closing yourself off and isolating yourself. Yeah. I mean, Oh yeah. I just, I keep thinking of all the people who are right now still in that place where they're not allowing themselves to really be and really feel. And those are the people I want to reach. That's why I keep doing what I'm doing because I just know that there are people who are right now feeling like we did all those years ago, you know, not being themselves, having shame, having isolation, feeling guilty, beating themselves up feeling stuck, feeling terrified, all of it. It's just like, oh, God, I just, oh. You just just want to give them a hug, right? I just really want to just sort of drag them into sobriety because it's so worth it. Yeah. So what would you say to those people? Like if you could tell them two things right now, if they're listening, what would it be? Can I have three? Yes, you can have three. Okay. Number one, be really honest with yourself because you know the truth. You know the truth. You are waking up at three in the morning. You know the truth. So be honest. Number two, know, really know deep down in your bones that change is possible and that you will get to a place where you don't miss that stuff at all. And number three, reach out and connect with people who understand what you're going through because that will really help turn things around. And you can do that in person. You can do that online anonymously. You can completely hide who you are online at first, you know, to feel protected, Mm -hmm. but connect with others because um, that will really empower you. And I'd add one that I know I found from your writing, which is you are not the problem. It is the alcohol that is the problem. Yeah. Absolutely. And that was my big turning point that last morning that I sat on the loo on the 6th of September 2011 was that little thought where I had the problem isn't me. The problem is the alcohol. And that's so powerful. The problem isn't me. The problem is the alcohol. And when you're diminished and you're feeling stuck and low and miserable and you've got no self-worth and no pride, you know, being able to tap into that little bit of strength, it's not me, it's the alcohol, that is what might lift you up and out of the problem. Absolutely. And when you say find other people who get it, I really think that it is very, very important to choose intentionally where you get 
your sources of sober support. My husband, like your husband is sort of, you know, what you call a normie, right? He doesn't get the no off switch, get the, the back and forth that was torturing me for years about being terrified to give up alcohol because I loved it so much. And yet feeling like I was doomed and I was going to ruin my life and my kid's life and his life because I was drinking so much. And he couldn't be the one who supported me through it, nor could my best friends from high school and college, because either they drank a lot too, or they, like him, just didn't get it. And the women you're going to find on the sober blogs, the women you're going to find through podcasts, the women you're going to read their stories through Quitlet, the women you're going to feel, find on places and men, like living sober, like on the secret Facebook group, they can be your source of sober support because they do understand. Yeah, and they're also lovely. <laughs> That's the thing. It's like, like we're also afraid that there are going to be drama or problems or it's like the know. best side of the internet, honestly. And it, it, we, especially at Living Sober, this community I run, I mean, all we do is talk about gritty. You know, I mean, it's not all gritty, but a lot of raw emotions and tricky stuff and childhood stuff and problematic family members and all manner of stuff you can't even begin to imagine. And yet we never, and I kid you not, we never have any tension. There are never arguments. There's never snippiness. Maybe once a year, someone might be slightly off, but the community pretty quickly lets them know we don't, we don't deal like that here. And it's just kind. And that alone, oh, especially in this day and age, is gold. Well, and part of that, what I love is when you go on those groups, when you go on like Living Sober, or my favorite secret Facebook group is the Booze Free Brigade. It's, you know, when you say that it bothers you in your book, that it bothers you that only one side of the picture is available, is visible, that it bothers you that you've created an environment for people to admit their truth, that, you know, alcohol is celebrated um, as this, you know, great elixir for everything. It is in those groups that you see the other side and not just the problems, but also how much better life is without alcohol and that alcohol isn't required. And that is where you're going to find the other side of the story and that you're not alone. Yeah. And that's what we need because as we've said, you know, throughout the environment we live in outwardly doesn't tell you that stuff. It just doesn't. And all you're seeing is happy people drinking. Um, you, you genuinely think that everyone's having a great time and you're the only one who's not. And it's just not true. It's a madness. I mean, I just get frustrated sometimes because I just get frustrated because I think this is a mad, it's crazy land, crazy land and a harmful crazy land. But I have to kind of calm myself down and just accept that we don't always get everything right. And at the moment, this is just a big problem that's one day it'll be fixed. But right now we do live in crazy land and we have to somehow remind ourselves we're not crazy. I have to say that the books you have published have such staying power. I know you published Mrs. D is Going Without a number of years ago. And to this day, it is touching people and helping them. I did a podcast on the best quitlet for women. And I asked all these women I know, what are the books that helped you through that period of 
when you needed help, when you needed support, what helped change your mind about what drinking is and what sobriety is or life without alcohol is. And a friend of mine, Kylie, recorded an audio about your book. And she said that she read it when she was three months sober. And at the time, she just needed something funny. She needed to be uplifted. She said that she'd read many memoirs that were raw and gritty, and she needed something different. And that your book, Lada, was wonderful and witty and charming and real and funny. And she really needed your approach to the sobriety path. And she needed it when she was three months into the process. So what you were writing resonates and helps women for years and years and years. And I just wanted to thank you for that because it's important. Oh, thank you. That, that actually means a lot because I sometimes need to be reminded of that, I think, because, you, you, you know, putting out a book is a very strange process. It's very lonely when you're writing and then it's very heady when you're actually releasing it and then it goes very quiet <laughs> so yeah. it is a bit of an emotional minefield but I do I do feel good about them and I do know that you know they're out there to live on and have their own lives out in the world and the first memoir Mrs. Dare's Going Without which was six years ago now we released it does it does trickle away um, reaching people so yeah, I, I do feel good about what I've done and what I've said. And um, even if I move on now with work or whatever it is, I know that if anyone is ever wondering what I think, it's all written out there in black and white. <laughs> yeah, and just by documenting your process, not only of giving up drinking in those early days, but also with Mrs. D is going within and how you you know, needed to go beyond that, right? You give up this really maladaptive and addictive coping strategy and then you're left with your feelings and you need new coping strategies and you need new ways to navigate life and those are the healthy skills that are going to serve you forever. Yeah, and that comes later because like you said before so brilliantly, when we first quit, we need to really throw ourselves into that just that process. We're reading Quitlet, joining groups, being really busy and active, just just learning how to not drink and then as time goes on we don't need to do so much of that work anymore because becoming being a non-drinker is just normal right we're not actually having to concentrate every day on not drinking alcohol um and that's when the other stuff needs to come in because the emotions come the tricky things happen and that was when I realized I just didn't really have any go-to um tools in my toolbox so that's what that second book is all about me developing those and that's still ongoing that work and things shift and change over time that's the other thing I find what worked for me in my first sort of three four years of sobriety maybe doesn't anymore and I've had to kind of re-look at what tools I have in place to help me cope with things. Um, there's a lot of time that's freed up uh, by not So drinking. much time. My, so much My time. latest obsession is jigsaw puzzles. Uh-huh. I am not a puzzle <laughs> girl at all. I never had that. So I maybe maybe when I get to year, year eight, year nine, I'll develop it, but I'm not sure. It's sort of like Scrabble. It's not my jam. You'll, you'll, you'll find your own things, Casey. Yes. Yeah. And... One last thing, I know we talked about really consciously taking a look at the marketing messages that you're surrounded by, taking a look at um, how much of that is funded by the alcohol companies, how much they're targeting women. I you know, see bottles of wine that are 
that are, um, you know, mommy's happy hour or mommy's time out or, you know, all those things. And we talked about editing your social media feed, which I feel like is so critical and diving into sober support communities that tell the other side, both the good of not alcohol, not having alcohol in your life, as well as the truth that it is not harmless. Do you have any other piece of advice for women who are really trying to get out of um, really buying into that mummy wine culture, that wine is the magic elixir? Just know that the liquor industry is is really targeting you heavily. They know what they're doing and they are trying to get your dollar. So they are all of the marketing and branding and pushing around um, alcohol and the pinking of liquor that they do um, is is very clever and targeted. And so just know, you've got to try and remember and remind yourself constantly that you are being manipulated. You know how gin is having a resurgence at the moment and there's gin clubs and there's botanicals and organics and that is a specific push to get women back into gin and it's worked and it's all come from boardrooms and liquor companies Let's make gin the thing. And sure enough, in my neighborhood, there's women going to gin clubs and buying books on gins and doing mixing. And it's just, it's just very, very specifically targeted to you. You are being played. So know that. Just try and put a filter on. Mm-hmm. And every time you see something, um, you know, in your Facebook feed or in a magazine or anywhere that's trying to tell you that your life's going to be better because of this sort of alcohol. They just want, they don't actually care about your life. They want your money. It's a business. So try and just have a really clear filter on that. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Thank you so much, Lada, for coming on and for your books. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've made me feel really good today. All right. I think I'm actually going to go have a cup of tea because I have to say I'm a coffee girl. But when you're talking about tea and all the the kinds of tea you love, I I do have a lot. I feel like everyone who quits drinking buys the massive tea collection. And I actually, you know, four years in, don't dip into it very much. So I'm going to go do that. Mm, Great. All right. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hello Someday podcast. If you're interested in learning more about me, the work I do, and access free resources and guides to help you build a life you love without alcohol, please visit hellosomedaycoaching.com. And I would be so grateful if you would take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast so that more women can find it and join the conversation about drinking less and living more. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. 
If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.